I want you to turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read the passage, and then I uh, want you to keep your Bible open, because late in the message, I'm going to come back to it again. But uh, this is really, the, in a nutshell, what I want to say this morning. Hebrews 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain or the veil that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance of faith. Well, Easter has just passed. And what a time Easter is as we remember the glorious hope of resurrection that is given to each of us because Jesus died and rose again to live forever. I want to tell you one of my favorite stories about Easter, if you'll forgive me, and let's go back to that day. Philip was a Down syndrome boy. He went to Sunday school with nine other eight-year-olds. But Philip, with his differences, was not readily accepted by the rest of the group. When Easter came, the teacher collected some of those great big eggs. You know, the kind that pantyhose come in. I haven't bought any lately, so... (laughs) I don't know whether they still make them or not, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. And the teacher asked the children to go outside and collect something that spoke to them about new life. And so away they went in happy abandon, and, and uh, they were to put this thing in the egg. And uh, then they brought them all back and put them on the table in the Sunday school classroom, And the teacher began to open them one by one. And in one of them, there was a flower. And they oohed and awed over the flower. Uh, In another, there was a leaf. And they oohed and awed over that. And then somebody had caught a little butterfly. And, of course, that was very exciting. Well, then the teacher picked up another one and opened it. And there was nothing in it. And the children said, Oh, somebody didn't play fair. That's not right. And Philip spoke up and said, It's mine. Oh, Philip, you never do anything right. Why can't you be like the rest of us? And Philip said, I did too do it right. It's empty. The tomb was empty. And there was a dead silence in that classroom. A very solemn silence. Because Philip had gotten the real meaning of Easter. That Jesus was alive and the tomb was empty. Something happened that morning. Suddenly Philip became a part of the group. 
when they took him in. He had gotten what they hadn't really gotten, that Jesus is alive. Well, that's a part of the Easter story. But there's another part of the Easter story that is just as important as the empty tomb, but is seldom emphasized. In fact, in my 64 years of preaching, and I know you don't think I'm that old, but but in my 64 years of preaching, I have never preached on this passage. So this is brand new for you this morning. And I've never heard a sermon on the passage. And yet, it is extremely important. And that is concerning the veil. That's King James English. Later editions call it the curtain. And curtain doesn't really express exactly what it was. But each of the three synoptic gospels talk about it. Let me read you Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. At that moment, it says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks split. Mark chapter 15, verse 37. With a loud voice, Jesus breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And in Luke chapter 23 and verse 45, it said, For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now the fact that all three gospel writers talk about it makes it a significant event. What is the significance of it? And I want you to think very seriously with me this morning about this event and what it means. So point number one, what veil or curtain do we mean? Well, back in the tabernacle of the wilderness, and we have to go back to the book of Exodus and Numbers and all of those uh, books in the Torah, the tabernacle was built in two rooms. There was one room that was 15 by 30 by 15 and another room that was 15 by 15 by 15. The holy place and the most holy place, which was the smaller of the two. The priests could enter into the first place. They would push aside the curtain or the veil at the entrance and they would go in to the holy place to do their daily work. And that meant replacing the the loaves of bread on the table, and that meant seeing that the oil was in the lamp so that it never went out, and the burning of the incense. The second room was half the size of the first room, and it had one piece of furniture, and that was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a golden box, and it had a lid, and the lid was the mercy seat. Inside the box were the tables of stone on which the Ten Commandments had been written, and 
there was also Aaron's rod that had budded, and there was also the pot of manna. And then there was the lid, and this was covered with pure gold. And then there were the cherubim uh, who were carved out of gold, and they had their wings up to overshadow the mercy seat, which was the place of atonement back in the Old Testament. Entrance of that, to that room was barred by a curtain 15 feet square. And no one could go in except the high priest. In Exodus chapter 26, you're told in verse 31, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, finely twisted linen, with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. It was a magnificent embroidered curtain that guarded the presence of God. And the people had no right to go there, not even the priests. The room was only entered one time every year by the high priest alone. He preceded his entry with a smoke of incense, and then he carried with him into that room a bowl of blood that he sprinkled on the top of the mercy seat. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 7, you're given the reason. It says, into the second veil or room went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of his people. Now, when the temple in Jerusalem was built, I, I don't know what happened. I have a hunch that they maybe enlarged the room somewhat to what it had been in the tabernacle in the wilderness. I have no way of knowing that. But the same pattern was followed. The Ark of the Covenant was in the most holy place, the second room, and only the high priest could go into that room once every year, and he had to carry blood with him for an atonement for the people. Second, what was the significance of this veil or this curtain? The word veil means to hide or to conceal. And that's exactly what it did. It hid that ark which symbolized the presence of God so that the people could not go in. It hid the presence of God from the people. It denied access to God from the people. It denied anyone's approach to God directly. Only the priests could see the veil as they did their work in the outer room every day in, in solemn reverence. Only the high priest could enter behind that veil once every year. The people had no direct access to God. People could not approach God in any way. The priests entered in their behalf, 
and the people were not to invited to draw near. Now that's the pattern of the Old Testament. Stay back, stay back. You have no right to be here. In fact, Exodus chapter 19 and verse 12, concerning the mountain, when Moses was receiving the, the tables of stone, uh, it says, put limits around the mountain for the people and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch a, the foot of it. For whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. And that shows how, how fearful the people had to be of, of profaning the name of God. And the tabernacle was the same way. The people had no approach directly to God. There was a deep sense of awe about God among those people. Even fear of the Lord. Stay back. Don't come near. That was the Old Testament message. You cannot approach God. And that brings me to my third point. And that is, why were the people denied access? And the simple reason is, because they were sinners. All of them, without exception, every one of them, were sinful and they could not approach a holy God. You read about the holiness of God. First Samuel chapter 2 verse 2 says, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. And then there's that wonderful passage in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, where he saw in his vision the cherubim flying over the throne of God, and they were crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this is a theme of the Old Testament, that God is holy. And so in Psalm 96, verse 9, we are told, Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Because sinful people could not stand in the presence of a holy God. A, a God who is so far different from us. Holy. And I back that up with some scriptures. For example, in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2, Isaiah proclaimed, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And Jeremiah said the very same thing. And in Jeremiah 5.22, excuse me, 5.25, he said, Your iniquities have turned these things away, and your sins have withheld good from you. And that theme is picked up in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, we read, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. That means that not one of us is perfect as God is perfect, holy as God is perfect, and we have no access to the throne of God. 
And in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not one of us in this room who is just like God, because God is holy and undefiled and separate from sinners. And Jesus said it himself in Luke chapter 5 and verse 32. He said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Paul picks up the very same theme in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, do we understand that? Jesus came for the purpose of saving sinners. You cannot be saved unless you admit that you're a sinner. That's the truth of the gospel. He is a perfect God, and we are imperfect people. A few weeks ago... Justice Scalia died. You know that. He was a man I greatly admired for his courage to stand for the Constitution and for the truth. I don't know whether you watched his funeral or not, but it was held in a large Catholic church, and he was a Catholic. And uh, his son, who was a Catholic priest, presided at the funeral, which is a very unusual thing. And uh, as they proceeded with the funeral, the son began to talk about his father. He talked about his great intellect. He talked about their wonderful family life together and how the father had really trained their children. He talked about the the worldwide influence that Justice Scalia had had as he traveled here and there uh, to speak to various groups. And he spoke about his influence upon the court. And after he had described so much uh, that was wonderful about his father, he said, when it comes down to a final analysis, my father was a sinner. That was sort of shocking, wasn't it? My father was a sinner. And he needed an atonement for his sins before he could be received into heaven. And what was said about Justice Scalia is true about every last one of us. There needs to be an atonement. And so I come to my fourth point, and that is, when was the veil destroyed? Let me read again from Matthew 27, verse 50. It said, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the temple in uh, at, the, in, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook. 
and the rock split. And another passage, it says there was a great earthquake. But it wasn't the earthquake that made the curtain split. What did it mean that the curtain was torn in two? First, it meant that access to God was fully open to everyone. The curtain was gone. The atonement had been made on the cross, and now there was access to God through the atonement of Jesus Christ. It meant that the atonement had been made to cover sin, yours and mine. It meant that no longer did we need a priest to approach God for us because we had full access to approach the throne of God ourselves through Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross. And it meant that any person who asked God for forgiveness through the atonement of the cross, through the blood of the cross, could approach Jesus Christ directly. Let me go back to the passage I asked you to look at in the beginning. Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, the, se- the second room where the presence of God dwells, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance of faith. There was a story in Daily Bread a few weeks ago. We read it every day. And and I thought it was a wonderful story. It was about a woman who was driving her car toward home. And as she came to her street, there was a great big sign that said, Road closed. No access. And she almost began to panic because her family was down there. How was she going to get home? How was she going to deal with this thing? There was no access. It is denied. And then she read the little print at the bottom, and it said, except for residents. And suddenly the panic was gone. She belonged. She could drive down that street, and she could enter her home because residents had the right And so it is with a holy God. When we are denied, 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 but when we come to the atonement of Jesus and claim that as our own, then we have the right of access into his very presence at any time, at any place, in any way. We can cry out to God. And he receives us. You see, what a relief. The way is open. Anyone who acknowledges his sin can come right in. In fact, Jesus said, come unto me, 
And you know the verse, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And John six thirty seven says, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I'll never drive away, another translation said. You see, the destroying of the veil was a significant act of God. It wasn't just an accident. It was a significant act of God. The atonement had been made for our sins on the cross, and now we can enter straight in and talk to God. We can meet him. The way became open so that we can go directly to God. Now anyone can come in. We have the right of access into the presence of God. And there's a wonderful verse in the New Testament. I've used it over all of the years of my ministry. Romans 10, chapter uh, chapter 10, verse 13 says, And whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does that mean, to call on the name of the Lord? It means that I come before God and I say to him, in effect, I have no right to be here because I'm a sinner. But I come to you because Jesus died on that cross and made an atonement for my sin. And so I come to you in his name. And I ask you to forgive me my sins. I ask you to cleanse me from my sins. I ask you to come into my life and make me a new creature. And that's what we call being saved. Saved from our sins. Saved from eternal death into eternal life with a glorious hope of the resurrection. Whoever shall call on the name of the Lord in that way shall be saved. Now I have a question for you. Have you called? Have you asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior? I'm not talking about joining the church. I'm not talking about being baptized. I'm asking you, have you ever called on the name of the Lord? Have you invited him to come into your life by saying, dear Lord, I know that I have sinned against you and I'm not worthy to approach you, but I come in the name of Jesus who made the atonement for my sin. I come and ask you to come into my life and give me an eternal hope. Have you called? Can you recall praying a prayer like that and inviting him to be your Savior? You know, coming to God like that is, in a sense, being like being married. We went before the pastor or the judge, and we said certain words, and we remember the event where we said, I do, and, and we carry that with us. Calling on the name of the Lord is a similar kind of event. I come to him 
and I invite him to come in because Jesus made the atonement for me and opened the way through the curtain. And, and, and now I have a right to walk right in because Jesus died for me. Have you called? I read a story the other day about a little child and the mother wanted to take him to the petting zoo and uh, he didn't know what that was. And so he said, I want to go for a walk. And she said, no, we're going to get in the car. I want to go for a walk. And then he began to cry and scream as she buckled him into the car seat. I want to walk. I want to walk. And he was so terribly upset. And some of you get upset when I talk about your absolute need to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And that little boy just screamed and hollered all the way to the petting zoo. And then when he got to the petting zoo, he found that it was more than he ever imagined and far greater than a walk. And when you open your heart to Jesus and ask him to come in and forgive you through the atonement of Christ and to save you and to make you God's child and to give you eternal life, It'll be the greatest thing in the world. The greatest thing in the world. Have you called on the name of the Lord? You may even be a member of this church, but you can't remember the time when you called on the name of the Lord. But that's the only hope and the only way of eternal life. And that is the real meaning of Easter. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we are so grateful that your son Jesus came to earth, that he died upon a cross, and that his blood was poured out as an atonement for our sins, giving us the right to approach you in his name and ask you to make us your child so that we are redeemed and have assurance that we belong to you. And I pray that if there is any person in this congregation who has never done that, that this very moment and this service, they will make that commitment to the Lord Jesus and find his eternal salvation come to their soul. And so bless this invitation time, I pray in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Have you called? If you haven't, there's no better time to do it than right now. And if you would come and make that decision this morning, I want to meet you right down here at the front, or Pastor Tom would meet you right here at the front, and we'll rejoice with you. It's the greatest thing in all the world. Or perhaps you did come to this service this morning planning to become a member of the church. I invite you to come. Most important thing is, do you know Jesus in the way of access to him through the atonement of Christ? I'm going to be right here, and while we sing, would you come home?